Со двора подъезд известный под названием Черный ход В том подъезде, как в поместье, проживает черный кот он в усы усмешку прячет, темнота ему как щит, все коты поют и Hello, everybody. Welcome to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. I'm Sean Guillory. In this episode, I speak with Ben Judah about his book, Fragile Empire, How Russia Fell In and Out of Love with Vladimir Putin. Ben Judah reported for Reuters in Moscow from across the former Soviet Union, including on the Georgia War in 2008 and the Kyrgyz Uprising of 2010, before joining the European Council on Foreign Relations as a Russia analyst. He is currently a visiting fellow at the European Stability Initiative. His work has featured in the Financial Times, The Economist, Prospect, Standpoint, and Foreign Policy. For more, here's my interview with Ben Judah. Hi, Ben. Uh, hi, Sean. Welcome to New Books in Russia and Eurasia. Thank you. And thanks for joining me to talk about your book, Fragile Empire, How Russia Fell In and Out of Love with Vladimir Putin. Thank you. Um, just to start, why don't you tell me a bit about yourself and how you came to write a book on this subject? Well, um, my father's a reporter, and I spent uh, my childhood in the Balkans uh, in the immediate aftermath of the fall of communism. And some of my earliest memories involve watching the anti-communist revolution in Bulgaria. And I remember seeing the Lenin statues and the Red Stars be, be taken down and asking my mother, well, so where are they going? To which she answered, they were going back to Russia, which left me almost from the moment go uh, fascinated about Russia and wanting to understand what this country was that had come, transformed the Balkans, and then suddenly left as the moment I uh, st- started being conscious. And uh, I, I started working in... Uh, in reporting and journalism uh, about Russia, and I worked for two years at the European Council on Foreign Relations, which is a think tank, where I wrote with two colleagues a uh, policy report on uh, what the consequences of the end of 7% growth would be on for Russian politics, particularly in, uh, looking into foreign policy. And uh, when we were researching this uh, report, I, it, it kind of dawned on me that... Uh, even though on the surface very little had changed in Russia between 2008 and at the time it was uh, late uh, 2010, early 2011, below the surface there had been a huge shift in attitudes, uh, values, how Russia saw itself, the debates people were having in the political class. And uh, this report uh, predicted that, there would, that Russia would go into a period of uh, sort of sort of self-doubt and anxiety and the system would come under increasing strain um, with, with the end of 7% growth. And the report was called sort of Dealing with a Post-Brick Russia. And only a few weeks after the report was published, uh, I found myself in Moscow watching the outbreak of the protest movements uh, that have that are form a big part of the story of the book. And uh, I remember watching the... Um, main protest on Sakharov Avenue on the 24th December 2011. There's 100,000 people kind of gathered, sort of demanding change in the Putin system and thinking I had to write a book about how the Putin regime had gone from one period very much into another. And uh, over the course of the year, uh, reporting, traveling across Russia, trying to interview as many people as I could, uh, the book tracked um, that change, which uh, turned out to be slightly unexpected uh, based on what people were maybe hoping for on December 24, 2011. 
Wow, you seem to be uh, have always have a, uh, or at least have an advantageous position in witnessing history, um, to, to to see the collapse of communism and and as 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 a young person, and then to kind of have this prescient report. Um, and it's quite exciting. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I've, um, I, I guess so. But one thing that I've always been, I think, is very important uh, in writing about Russia is what I try to do is I try and blend uh, you know analysis trying to really be sure on all of the statistics and trying to be be kind of very well versed in, in um, you know fis- economic matters fiscal matters polling data but also trying to kind of explain to people through writing what it's like to witness uh, these historical events and to explain people to explain to readers uh, just how kind of confusing exciting euphoric uh, how kind of twisted a lot of these moments can be and how important you know, sort of being in the moment is to understanding how political decisions are made. And uh, it, I, I, what the book tries to, to tell the story about in how Russia has changed since 2008, a lot of what I was trying to make sense of in the book is how Russia could have gone from in... 2008, being this country that had just won uh, a conflict in Georgia with 7% growth, with uh, coming on the back of 140% uh, rise in real incomes in the Putin era, with Putin's popularity uh, over 70%, uh, how it could have reached the point in which you could have had such large mass protests in Moscow. I want to spend a little bit of time on the title. Um, because t- titles are really important because they they tend to have assumptions behind them, and they, but they also communi- communicate a theme of your book. And what do you mean by fragile empire? Well, the reason I called uh, this book fragile empire is because Putin thinks Russia is fragile. Putin's political life has been this quest for stability, and Putin is animated, and we see this time and time again by this this deep feeling, this paranoia even, that without him and without the policies that he's pushed through, the country risks falling apart. And I wanted to to express to uh, a Western audience that even though Putin kind of postures and uh, is perhaps most famous in Britain and America for for uh, his photo shoots, hunting in Tuva. Actually, Putin th- thinks that Russia is this very fragile thing and that running across the political spectrum from Putin justifying that he has to stay in power because otherwise the country risks collapsing to the opposition saying that if Putin stays in power, the country risks collapsing. This theme of fragility is key. And now, why, why an empire? And one of the, the things that really surprised me as I was researching the book, and I did two trips from uh, the Baltic to the Pacific across Russia, was that not just are there ethnic regions like Tuva or Yakutia, where people don't really view Moscow as a federal centre, they view Moscow as an imperial centre, they don't feel that they have any control or, or any feedback loops towards it. But the thing that struck me was that actually in all of the very normal ethnic Russian regions I went through, people feel there that they are Moscow colonies. Mm -hmm. They feel that they're colonies of the Kremlin, that they're not, they have no say in how they're governed, their local interests aren't respected, and there is this this feeling in places like the Russian Far East or the kind of the Urals, that both sides of Moscow, either the 
Moscow opposition or the Moscow establishment are kind of sort of high and mighty and not interested in them. And uh, I find this, I found this very interesting. I wanted to communicate that with the title. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's actually really fascinating because. Um you know, this is this speaks to a long-term historical problem of of Russia becoming a nation, and 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 what you just kind of put forward suggests to me that that process of becoming a nation is still very much incomplete. That people, even within its borders, even ethnic Russians who are its primary citizens, feel that they are internally colonized. Oh, absolutely, and. Um... What I found in particular in the Russian Far East, and I have a, a chapter of my book sort of describing uh, how I found political sentiments uh, there and what, you know, what, what, I, what I thought about the region. What, what I found there was that people, people were, were very quick to say that they resented Moscow for the following reasons. They resented it because Moscow sends foreigners, they would often call them Europeans, to uh, sit in key positions like the head of the local FSB, the head of the local MVD, which is the internal interior ministry forces. Uh, The governors were appointed. In many cases, they don't even come from the local region. And uh, you have all of these key positions uh, being not locals, which means that locals see these sort of foreign implants, in their view, building corrupt uh, business practices, corrupt chains around them, and this money, which they've used their own money or their own resources, falling into the hands of people who either don't understand local interests or aren't interested in them. And uh, what I found coming up from below in the Russian regions is a very different kind of uh, antagonism towards the Putin system, the one we've become very familiar with uh, from Moscow, which is in all of the regions I, I went to, I found that when you ask people what they think of Putin, well, it's quite a kind of abstract question. He's not really, he's not directly relevant to them in a lot of ways. And, but when you ask people what you think of the local governor or what you think of United Russia, suddenly people become very agitated and very very angry with um, with both of those both of those things and what I think has happened is that the key mistake that uh, Putin and the designers of United Russia made uh, during the 2000s was to try and enlist all of the governors and all of the bureaucrats right down to the policemen in Russia to be part of Putin's party which established a chain of responsibility in people's minds mm-hmm. that when you're dealing with in out in uh, Siberia or uh, in uh, some unfortunate province in the far north with corrupt officials that are in charge of, say, local council housing. Mm-hmm. These people will say that they're members of United Russia and that this defends them from um, any accusations you can bring at them. This is why the opposition slogan, United Russia is the party of crooks and thieves, is so popular. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I found that mix in the regions you have these anti-federal emotions bubbling up you have this anti-bureaucratic emotion bubbling up. You have this frustration with bureaucrats, and you have this anti-immigrant uh, emotion mixing into this anti- this sort of anti-corruption hysteria from from below. And hmm. um, just to come back to your your question of like, is about Russia becoming a nation? One of the things that I think 
marks the Putin era out from the Yeltsin era is that Putin is that Russia was going through in the 1990s these very painful, unpleasant, hysterical debates about the past and about what Russia was, about what that would mean. And Putin closed these debates down. And what I found, in particular in ethnic regions or in... Uh, is that a lot of necessary debates that have to happen haven't happened. And I have a feeling that, that this will, will come back to haunt Putin. Hmm. So, for example, I was in Bashkortostan, and I managed to meet with, which is a Muslim-majority uh, province in the Volga, which is very oil-rich. And I managed to spend time talking to the president and many senior officials there. And it became clear, talking to them, that they didn't feel that the permanent relationship between Bashkortostan and between Moscow had been set in stone was that the, the, the relationship with Putin was set in stone, and that wasn't going to change until Putin went. But questions of just what was autonomy, these things weren't resolved. Well, let, let's kind of go back to the center and talk about Putin, the man himself, since, I mean, as you left off, they, they felt their, their deal was with Putin was solid, but their deal with the rest of the system was quite uh, amorphous. Now, before you... you pretty much described him as almost a traumatized person, but in the book you, you describe him as from a lost generation. Um, what what yes. do you mean by this, and, and how does this shape uh, Putin's worldview and, and him as a political figure? Thank you for kind of drawing attention to that, because one thing that has frustrated me in kind of reading and writing about Russia over the years is that something that seems very obvious to people who spend a lot of time in Eastern Europe or from there, which is, is that what happened to all of these millions of people who believed in the system, who were never dissidents, who never questioned, who never questioned it, and who suddenly found their whole world collapse around them. What, what, was the, what were the consequences for them in their worldview? And I think Putin, I think Putin is extremely interesting and extremely important uh, for Western readers and policymakers to understand because he came from this generation of people who just like that had believed in the Soviet system, had not wanted its dissolution, but it wanted its reform. And he, in my opinion, kind of is a perfect prototype of a generation of men who, in the, 1980, in the 1980s, um, lost their faith in communist authoritarianism. In the 1990s, lost their faith in democracy. And it's what Russians often call the double disaster, the failure of both systems, which means that men like Putin, particularly with his sort of exact age profile, men in government service as well, were left extremely burnt out and, and with no certainties apart from cynicism. And they were left despising two kinds of people. One were the kind of romantic, crusty... Uh, romantic yet crusty old socialist bureaucrats of the previous generation but also the kind of hectoring democrats of, of their own generation or of their own generation and I think it's very important to understand Putin to see to see how he believes it, his mind was created believing out of, in neither and how his life experience uh, and his political experience began working in a failing authoritarian bloc and then was defined by working in a failing democracy in the 1990s. Wow, that's that's actually a really important take to understand him as a man. I mean, he and he does represent a, a, a wider generation of people who 
to some extent still haven't really found their footing um, in in post-Soviet life. I mean, they're, they they're straddling the revolutionary divide, and and they can't seem to. They're, they have they still hold on to the old, old moral codes and can't necessarily reconcile them with the absence of a new moral code. And I think that that's really key to understand. I'd agree. And like one of the things that I think is important about Putin is that I think Putin has been a terrible bureaucrat, but and a, in many ways a flawed, failed state state builder. But I think Putin has been a brilliant politician, mm-hmm. and Putin's key political stroke of genius when he kind of assumed power and set uh, his agenda was to reverse um, what had been happening in the 1990s under Yeltsin. And under Yeltsin, you know, the Kremlin told Russia what it wanted it to know, that the Soviet Union had been a failure, it had been games of lies and deceit, that uh, it had been a giant mistake, the conflicts that that state had pursued and the sacrifices that it had made. And the intellectuals that rose to prominence were ones that rejected uh, uh, the Soviet experience and the Soviet achievement. And this left millions of people in Russia feeling that their lives had been lived in vain, mm-hmm. that their sacrifices had been made in vain. And it created a giant um, majority of people in the country who felt that they had either been humiliated, déclassé, uh, or denied their what they viewed as their rightful self-esteem in the post-revolutionary situation. And I think Putin's stroke of genius was to, and he summed this up very very simply when he said that anyone who does not regret the fall of the Soviet Union has no heart, no heart but anyone who wants it back has no head, is that Putin was trying to, to say that the glories of the Soviet Union are Russian glories, that your achievements in the USSR are achievements in Russia, and to try and reconcile the the Russian state with the Soviet state by trying to make people think that their achievements have not been wasted. And I think his his political narrative uh, was was so successful because I think these millions of, of people in Russia, they didn't just want him to say to say that. They actually needed someone to mm-hmm. say that psychologically after the nineteen nineties. Yeah, I, I completely agree and this is one of the, the problems I have with people who I would say misinterpret the effort to create a standard history that tries yes. to reconcile all three periods of Russian history, the imperial, Soviet, and post-Soviet period as one continuum, um, because they don't, it seems to me that, that Russia does not have a post-Soviet national identity because they don't know what to do with the past. They can't reconcile its bad parts, and they can't reconcile its good parts. And I think actually Putin um, represents, strangely enough, a kind of middle ground between the extremes. I'd agree. Uh, and one thing I'd add to that, though, and this is something I've been thinking about a lot over the past uh, few weeks, is in, I think you're absolutely, absolutely right to say that Russia lacks a lot of these positive identity markers for post-Soviet identity. But I think Russia has a lot of negative identity markers. And one thing I found very fascinating, I tried to draw out in the book, is just how similar a lot of the rhetoric is between Putin and the opposition leader Alexei Navalny, and how across the post-Soviet spectrum, there are these these shared fears, these fears of collapse, these fears of disappearing completely, this conviction that 
the state needs to be be saved from bloodsuckers. For Putin, those were the he initially said those were the oligarchs. Now Navalny says that in fact that's Putin and his oligarchs. And what I find so interesting is that if you sit down with Navalny and if you would sit down with Putin, they would tell you in many ways the same thing, which is that Russia without you know, great leadership uh, and uh, is at risk of collapse. And I, what I try and describe in the book is that I don't think Russia is at risk of um, a new Soviet-style collapse. What I think has happened is that an apocalyptic narrative, which is a very natural consequence of the, of the trauma of the fall of the Soviet Union, has entered into Russian political life. And that Putin has stayed in power by being able to manipulate it and use it. And the opposition's best chance of driving him from power is if they can steal it from him. Um, now, you, but you, you do in the book characterize Russia as an authoritarian regime. And you, you put that, the great turn toward that um, beginning in 2003 with the arrest of Mikhail Khodorkovsky. And then following that the Beslan crisis, and the Orge revolution in Ukraine. Um, how are these so pivotal, these, these events, pivotal in defining Putinism? Well, the Putin system was not... The Putin system was built between 1999 and 2000 and the 2004 presidential election, in my opinion. And each time between 1999 and 2004 that Putin was confronted by a challenge... It could be the Hodorkovsky challenge, it could be the, the challenge in Beslan, the challenge of the Orange Revolution. This brought out his political instincts and this made him reach for political solutions that bit by bit the country became more authoritarian. So I don't think that there was a, a master plan or a plot uh, in 1999 to uh, restore Russia to a uh, fully authoritarian state. So I think this sort of came out uh, bit by bit as these... These uh, reactions were responsive, they were reactive, they were hobbled together at the last minute in response to crises as they emerged. So that was what I was trying to bring out in, in that chapter. Yeah, that's, I have to say that I keep on, um, and I really hate to say this because I don't like the comparison, but this is how I understand the, stand the unfolding of Stalinism as not a plan, but a reaction to a series of events, and reactions in particular exactly. ways... And through those building blocks, do you get all of you get at some point a concretization of a, a, a severe, in Stalin's case, a severe authoritarian system um, that puts violence at, at front? And and I really appreciate the way you categorize the concretization of Putin's authoritarianism as a response rather than a proactive uh, stance to deal with aspects problems in the country. Thank you. Yeah, well, I think that. A lot of my understanding of that came from like reading Russian history and from my and from I find often that uh, the first drafts of history uh, tend to view things more as uh, plots or carefully executed plans, but it's the historians that always uh, uncover actually what a mess these things were and how poorly <laughs> poorly thought through they were. So I was trying to I was trying to bring that out in in that chapter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, an, another po- um, you discussed three defining pillars of, of Putin's rule: the power vertical, mm-hmm. um, the ruling elite that makes up his cohort, and supermarkets. Um, how do they figure into into your understanding of Putinism? 
Well, let's start with supermarkets. And I, I think that it's not been appreciated uh, in Western analysis of Putinism just what a dramatic legitimizing effect consumerism had and the incredible consumer boom that happened in Russia uh, during the 2000s and, and I what I have found was that the as supermarkets and easy access consumerism and easy access travel and easy access good quality clothing and uh, and cars and telephones spread in the in the uh, in the two thousands. This this serves the the essential legitimizing effect on the Putin regime. And something very interesting I found during my field research was that in regions in Russia in which consumerism is at its most advanced, like Moscow, Ekaterinburg, or Saint Petersburg, that triggers Sort of run off. It's no longer enough that there are supermarkets in for people to to feel happy with the political system. But something I found very interesting is that I was in uh, Bidobijan, which is the Slavic majority region with the lowest human development index in Russia. And I asked several people why they had voted for United Russia and why they believed in Putin, and they escorted me to the brand new supermarket, saying that only under Putin could you buy whatever you wanted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Locals in that region and many others explained that this was such a qualitative leap in their lives. It was also something that they had been promised in the six, right from the sixties, and the promise of plentitude in communism through the nineteen nineties. This was a kind of very important thing for for Russians that plenty, in a sense, had finally arrived in the consumer revolution that happened under Putin. Yeah, and I would also add to that that the the remodeling of people's apartments. Which is, yes, I think, yes. are incredibly the the fact that they're buying washing machines, new televisions, and remodeling the interior of their apartments. It, it's an extraordinary uh, change in lifestyle that I think it, that you rightly say is a is a main legitimizing uh, factor. Well, what I wanted to bring out in the book, and especially in the chapter in which I discuss the consequences of the consumer revolution, is that often I find that. One of the key motivators in writing the book was to explain to Western readers why Putin had, had was genuinely supported. Because I, I think it's often presumed, uh, viewed from London or viewed from New York, that sort of Russians are kind of brain dead people, sort of controlled by state-controlled TV, and there aren't any reasons that anyone would support the Putin the Putin regime. And I wanted to to stress that from the perspective of of the majority during the 2000s, there were very real concrete benefits that would mean people would lose interest in politics, not out of some moral failing, but because there were very there were very real reasons to feel that the system was moving in the right direction. So what I then tried to do in the rest of the book is explain why I think that, that has changed in uh, for the new middle class or from the, for the newly prosperous, for the rich, and through for the inhabitants of the kind of key modern cities uh, in Russia like Moscow or Ekaterinburg. Now, now just to, to add on to that, how do you put the, the, make, the elite around him, the circle of the elite that is that mostly, most of them taking oil rents, and then the power vertical in, in your configuration of, of the system? Sure. Well, I think 
what's very important, to, the two things are very important to understand. First is that the Putin, the Russia is not ruled by a government only. Is the Putin system is not just a government. The Putin system is also an asset structure. And because control over the key resources of the country has been the kind of arithmetic of power in post-Soviet Russia, what Putin has done is to make sure that he and his loyalists have replaced the old controllers of those rents and are now in charge of them. And what this has done is that whereas Putin could represent himself to the public in the early 2000s as fighting a war against the oligarchs. Now, increasingly, Putin is seen as an oligarch and his uh, his supporters as representing exactly the same exactly the same thing. So, what I find very interesting in understanding the the Putin elite is how deinstitutionalized mm-hmm. power is around Putin. Is that it's not it's not. It's not directly linked to what people's positions are would be in the would be in the government or, or, or anything like that. In fact, the power around Putin, it's you find that the people who are the most influential might not even be might not even be in the government. Like uh, sort of say, for example, Igor Session, who is the chairman of the state order giant Rosneft, and some of the most important figures in keeping the Putin system strong would be businessmen and uh, the members of the Ozira Dacha collect- uh, collective that Putin was part of, all of whom have gone on to, to become sort of oligarchs and enjoy great fortunes. Now, coming on to the, the vertical of power, what I find very interesting about this is that this was Putin's main act of, of state-building. And even though what I find interesting about Putin as a politician is that in the mid 2000s he had he had in many ways the capacity to be and i think imagined himself to be the kind of russian li kuan yu the russian deng xiaoping the great authoritarian modernizer he had oil money in abundance he had legitimacy he had a consumer revolution he had he had a rock solid elite behind him and his state building vision expressed itself in the vertical of power which was incredible centralized which was centralization uh, return to sort of Soviet-style centralization. And what went wrong for Putin is that Putin actually botched this. And that instead of making an efficient, modern state capable of responding to to problems that ail the Russian system, such as corruption or venality, it actually turned... It actually made the system even more incompetent and prone to corruption than, than before. Here I would actually submit that this is where the... the- the personal power networks undermine the state building because yes. and and I don't know if you you're aware of this but you are tapping into a growing literature of how people understand the imperial and the soviet system as a personal networks of power that state institutions are actually quite hollow and what matters is who the individuals that inhabit uh, those places of power not the, the titles that come with them and and what you're describing here, this effort at state building, is incredibly undermined by the fact that around Putin is a circle of individuals, and they have their own ballywicks and clans and clients, and this burrows down into what I would call the, the actual real power vertical. It's a personnel network. It's not an institutional one. Exactly. Well, I'd agree, and um, it'd be fascinating to hear more about that picture of uh, hollow state building in czarist and Soviet periods. It's 
I, what's interesting I find in the Putin system, in particular over the regions, is that Putin failed to institutionalize a real vertical of power in which orders would be carried out, orders sent from Moscow would be carried out in, in the regions. And ironically, what he institutionalized was a sort of Putinist way of behavior mm-hmm. in which right the way through the system from those around Putin to those appointed to be in charge of, of entire regions or small uh, obelisks, you, you have individuals behaving is using their administrative positions for, for private gain and simultaneously monopolizing the, the political resources to kind of keep the system going, but actually fa- often failing to implement the very things which the system is sending down as orders mm-hmm. uh, from above. And I found that a Putinist way of behavior has been institutionalized across Russia. And you have, as you have people around Putin uh, behaving as personal personal networks, willing to kind of turn um, political power into financial power and the line between them being completely blurred and influence not being embedded in state institutions you find that in really all the, in the regions as well and you find governors willing to to give vast controls of resources to their friends their children their, their allies and uh, I think this is one of the key weaknesses of the Putin state yeah very much so um, now another point uh, turning point in, in the history of Putin's role was in 2008. When mm-hmm. uh, the, the Dmitry Medvedev was chosen to be his successor, and and the the tandem was born, How, why does the tandem serve as another pivotal shift? Well, I mean, what do you make of this Dmitry Medvedev interregnum? Well, I think that Dmitry Medvedev has been it's Dmitry Medvedev has been sort of trivialized. I think in a lot of the reporting and uh, analysis around him. And one of the things I was trying to to bring out in uh, my chapter on the Medvedev era is that um, Medvedev and the narrative that he built around himself were far more important than people think. And Medvedev uh, promised to sort of... Medvedev it will go down in history as yet another Russian politician who had the power to say what was wrong with Russia, but not the power to do anything about it. Mm-hmm. And Medvedev continually drummed up these campaigns about modernization, about anti-corruption, about technology, about changing the atmosphere of Russian political life. And because he failed to deliver on them, he managed to simultaneously build up the appetite and the constituencies for, for reform and for change whilst disappointing them at the same time. And I think Medvedev failed to, to modernize the Russian state, but I think he did manage to modernize the mentality of the, the kind of Russian political class to its greatest extent in, in Moscow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I think so, that, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, sorry, uh, no, and I think it's important not to not to trivialize that and to to concentrate on whether or not he was an indep- a fully independent or a political actor or not because he he gave the power that he had and that may be limited to support think tanks uh, certain newspapers media media conglomerates to spread a certain tone 
and a very important moment that managed to sort of define uh, d- define that period. Uh, yeah, I'm glad to hear that you give him more significance than than what's usually given to him because it, especially as time goes on, I mean, now a year later since he left office, you can see the tone of the place has shifted dramatically. And and I wouldn't say that it's all because of protests. Medvedev did represent a different way. And and I was shocked, actually, and and quite surprised and disappointed that they didn't let him continue because I think they could have um, avoided a lot of the problems that they have now, but they could have morphed into a much more stable political system. Well, this comes back to an interesting thing about who is Putin, which is I... In my book, there's an interview with a, a kind of senior Kremlin advisor, and I asked him when him and his boss, who is a minister, had discovered that that Putin were, was going to be coming back as president. And I was told that uh, the Kremlin advisor and his boss had discovered on September 24th for the United Russia co- conference that <laughs> this was the case. And when I asked, how is this possible? How did you not know? Why... Why did they do this? What the gentleman replied was, what you have to understand is Putin is not a politician. Putin views Russia as his project. Putin is not a politician in the sense that you or I would understand it. He doesn't come from that background. I think that's quite revealing, is that Putin, Putin being viewed like that by his uh, inner circle. Now, now, the second half of your book shifts decisively to Russian society and, and, and the cracks that, uh, we, that have developed in, in Putin's fragile empire. Mm-hmm. Um, let's begin with the political opposition. Um, cool. How do you characterize its evolution and the protests since December 2011? Since December 2011? Um, well, I think it's been paradoxical, which is since... I think that since December 2011, the opposition has, in some ways, strengthened strengthened what exactly it stands for and how exactly it's organised and who exactly it is, who exactly leads it, which is all very unclear when the protest movement sprung up. But at the same time, it's managed to alienate itself from... Not only the natural support base in Moscow, but from the rest of society. So, I think that in December 2011, there was people were asking, "Who exactly? Who's the lead? How are we sure that Navalny is the leader? Who appointed you? Who elected you as the opposition? Where do you come from? How do we know that you're an opposition figure and he's not an opposition figure?" And attempting to answer those questions through the coordinate the opposition coordination council, which was elected online and which. And then becoming increasingly clear that Navalny is the sort of the real leader of that of that force, and in attempting to draw up some policy ideas and uh, campaign for specific issues, but like political prisoners, uh, it managed to undermine that support base because it exposed the elections to the Coordination Council, exposed the opposition in some senses for what it was, which is elitist, disconnected from the rest of Russian society, not on the verge of power, incredibly far from it, and uh, consumed by by debates that its natural supporters didn't view as actually related to the problems of Russia, but to 
sort of intellectual themes not uh, directly associated with them. I think the opposition failed in failed to take its message beyond Moscow, and there was very little interest in campaigning in the regions. There was very little interest in trying to work out what actually people are worried about and care about in working class communities, in uh, you know the Russian Rust Belts, uh, amongst the Russian poor, and I think this. I think this is very unfortunate, and uh, I think that that I think that the opposition won't be able to to move to the next level, or so to speak, unless it it takes a, a real interest in trying to to connect with Russian society uh, at large. One thing I, I found, uh, especially out in the regions, is that far more people than polling data seems to give credit for like know who, who Navalny is know that there is an opposition is that people are just extremely sceptical that they are interested in their concerns which are who's going to fix the road, who's going to make the hospital work better who's going to make sure the police aren't corrupt Right. they right. them as people who are who want to have these big beautiful conversations about like Khodorkovsky and about the constitution but and don't trust them to actually sort of uh, advance to change things yeah, I, I I think you're right in terms of the the first period from December to about two actually May and and beyond to some extent it really was a, a a kind of search for identity, kind of to figure out who we are as the opposition, who is in, who is out, who is our leaders, who are the ones that are going to potentially move this thing forward, and and that of course you saw all the confusion of trying to identify oneself in this new political situation. Exactly, and the, I think there are answers to that now. I think it's very clear to everybody. Just no one can go. Who is? No one can ask the question. Oh, you're the opposition. Who are you? Who's your leader? What do you stand for? All of those questions have been answered. Mm-hmm. But I think that, especially the coordination council, that has come at come at a cost uh, of. I think that has come at a cost, and I'm also. I also think that the opposition's suffering from something interesting is how the opposition is more has morphed from this more broad broad based movement into increasingly a Navalny movement, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I think that's that that is what it is. But uh, I think that's um, that's sort of something to think about, mm-hmm. which nope. is in in December twenty eleven. There were, it, it was not as dominated and centred about around Navalny as it is now. And I think now when we speak of the opposition, essentially we're talking about mm-hmm. him and the Coordination Council, which he created, and what he's doing, and his projects. And I think in some ways that's quite unnerving for the future, to see, in some ways within the, the opposition, there's no people say, oh, there's no alternative to, to Navalny. And there are some elements of, of leader cults around him, which I I try and talk about in the book. Mm-hmm. Now, now, what do you make of Alexei Navalny? Because on the one hand, he he has proven to be an astute public figure, but in in his politics are quite opaque, and and in some cases, when he articulates them, they seem come across quite naive. But at the same time, you, as you said earlier, you see a, a kind of parallel or a, some similarities in his worldview 
to Putin's. So what's your evaluation of him as a, as a political figure? Well, I think Alexei Navalny is a pure product of the Putin era in a lot of ways, for, for good and ill. I think that as he's a pure product of the Putin system for good, because Russian society when Putin came to power was was very ambiguous about freedom of speech, was very ambiguous about the need for an opposition, was ambiguous about media freedom and it's become far more convinced and committed to those uh, those values i think you see that on various levels and navalny reflects that like navalny is a, a pure product of that gener- of a generation that through consumerism and through the in- through the internet have become very adept and willing to express themselves i think he's also a pure product of the putin era in some less pleasant ways as well i think russia over the putin era has has become much more aggressive as a society, much more paranoid and much more Islamophobic. And I think he reflects that. Mm-hmm. And I think that you see in him both of these sides that, that come out, sometimes in the same tweets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would, I would definitely agree. Um, and and it, I think you give a, a, a fairly realist kind of balanced picture of, of who this figure is and, and what it, it's unclear exactly what he stands for in any kind of deeper sense um, but it's it's in, unmistakable that he is the, the de facto lever, leader of the movement uh, if, if anything the movement um, one last question uh, unless you wanted to comment on sure. that I'm just going to come back to Navalny in some sense I think that Navalny does reflect the new generation of Russian politicians in more ways than one. I think his his political naivete, like not not really having thought through what the consequences would be of stopping feeding the Caucasus, or not really having gone, not really having sort of thought how to put politics into practice, reflects a generation that, unless they went through very specific Putinist paths into politics, were denied the right to go into politics. Right. And therefore have not had the chance to think that, think that through. I also think Navalny, Navalny thinks of himself as a politician, continually talks about himself as a politician. And I think that the one thing we see is consistent in his political career is the willingness to go ideologically where he thinks will make him more popular, or where things will bring him more influence. Hmm. And I think people who want to stress that no, 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 actually Navalny is a nationalist, or no, 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 actually Navalny is true, is a true democrat or a true liberal. I think they're mistaken. It's Navalny, you know, Navalny is tr- is a politician in, in that sense. And I think that's what makes him so exciting mm-hmm. uh, to Russia because there aren't. Right, he captures. I think he he can he ha- he's shown to have the ability to represent other people's desires. Yes. Yes, I also think a key thing to understanding him is he's a true, he's one of the first internet populists. Mm-hmm. Is that, and I think that's what makes him so seductive and and absorbing to people. And he he worked out, in some ways, I think the, one of the first politicians in Europe to do this, how to use your blog and Twitter feed to make people. Tr- trust you because you're continually tweeting about what music you listen to or about like what kebab you ate or which makes it seem real and and there and one of the people and i think his use of 
his use of the blog and working out exactly how people use the internet, how people are obsessed about YouTube videos, how people, what people will share and what people won't, what kind of political messages you can make people retweet or make people repost. I think he kind of cracked that, that brilliantly. And uh, uh, I think that dealing with internet populists is something we're going to have to deal with over the, <laughs> the next decades to come. I think he's definitely that one of the first in, in Russia to really crack that. Mm-hmm. Now, now, finally, um, it's been a year since Putin formally returned as president of Russia. Um, why do you think he came back for a third term? And, and what is your evaluation of that term thus far? I think that... Putin truly believes that the Russian state is so fragile that without him it risks a new period of troubles or it risks collapsing. And from the interviews of Kremlin officials that I have in the book, what people bring bring up continues that he felt as the financial crisis went on, as the undertremors of political unrest started to be felt, that there was no one else apart from him that had the strength and the vision to kind of pull Russia forward. I think that's part of the story. I think the other part of the story is that Putin, like all Russian leaders before him in a sense, is a prisoner of the Kremlin. It, because Russian institutions are so weak, Putin can't leave power safely. Mm-hmm. Because the political system he's built is an asset structure of his allies controlling all of the key sort of money makers of uh, Russia's resource economy. There can't be a trans- transfer of power because that would mean a transfer of assets. And a transfer of assets would necessarily be deeply disruptive, perhaps even bloody, for the elite. And I think that's one of the reasons why Putin was encouraged to stay and why Putin chose to stay, just to make sure that that, that wouldn't happen or forestalling that, uh, that, that possibility. And I think that Putin is... Is in, is in some ways in a very difficult position because he risks, if he hands over power, he he risks that asset structure being unravelled and he also in the long term might even risk uh, justice being, uh, political politicised justice being turned on him. Yeah, I, I tend to categorise the, the Russian elite as, as always or, or has the tendency to cannibalise itself. <laughs> and yes. and and what you uh, what you've described um, um, s- suggests to me that 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 does continue nowadays. I mean, the the elite class, for some reason, um, has yet to move beyond um, a, a stasis of of internal civil war to a large extent because of the system that's been cr- constructed in the way it, in the way it works. I, I think you're absolutely right about that. Now, what what is your evaluation of of the first year of the third term? Well, just one, just to come back to Putin, one, mm-hmm. one final comment on that is, in many ways, like Putin needs Putin in the future, and Putin's position increasingly resembles that, and more of Yeltsin in 1998, uh, 1999, is that Putin needs this, this loyalist who can guarantee him, and one of the things... I think it's quite unnerving about Putin's psychology is that he clearly didn't trust Medvedev or anyone around him uh, as being strong enough to fulfill that goal. So coming back to to um, the, the, the first year and uh, surprises of that. So like, I think one thing that's been interesting in Putin's first year is just how far the system 
system has gone towards repressive measure, repressive measures, okay. and what that shows about how nervous the political elites are about um, their about their future. And uh, it was, I was just in Moscow, and uh, one of the things that I picked up there was that, in many ways, people are surprised at how there's been a return to a, a small scale return, but a return nevertheless to political prisoners with the infamous Bolotnaya case, mm-hmm. the trial of Navalny and him potentially facing 10 years in jail is something that people didn't expect and people are are very upset about in liberal circles more largely not just in the, the opposition and I think there's a surprise that the system has moved away from the politics of manipulation the politics of co-option towards more rigid kind of politics of strength and politics of forcing back and beating off, off challenges um, I think kind of overall uh, what the first year shows um, is that Putin's been very willing to use, very very willing to kind of shore his position up in the short term at the expense of the long term. And something I've just been noticing in the past few weeks, especially when kind of speaking to, to friends who are working in the foreign ministry or working in Moscow City Hall is that the term collaborator has entered into Mm. the lexicon. Hmm. Wonderful. (laughs) It's that people who are... Is that even Putin may believe that because he's beaten off the opposition, that strengthens his position. But the sociological costs of having resorted to oppression means that young people within the system are starting to feel morally compromised by association with it. Mm-hmm. So I think that's very interesting, and we'll see how that will, will play out. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you've given a, 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 lo- a lot to think about, and, and a, a very good analysis, one that I actually really appreciate, um, given that you could, you know, sometimes the analyses of contemporary Russia fall far short in its thick description. So I think you've done a wonderful job with that uh, here in the interview, and also, of course, in the book. Thank you very much. I've been speaking with Ben Judah about his book, Fragile Empire, How Russia Fell In and Out of Love with Vladimir Putin. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Once again, I'm Sean Guillory, your host for New Books in Russia and Eurasia. If you're interested in hearing more interviews by the New Books Network, please go to newbooksnetwork.com. Until next time, goodbye. Денег все не соберем.